presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Hello, so glad you're joining me again. Uh, this is Pastor Adam, and uh, I'm going to continue with looking into this spiritual domain, this unseen domain. Now, if you were with me on the last podcast I did, it was, you know, it was about spiritual beings that were not angels or were, wasn't humans, but rather uh, we were showing in Scripture that these were like lesser Elohim, lesser gods that the Most High Elohim, the Most High God, created. And they were in a parallel spiritual universe, I guess it would be best to say. And, and I referred to them as kind of like a divine council, a, a staff, if you will, of the Most High Elohim. Now, today's podcast is going to dig into what transpired in Genesis 3. And it's there that we are introduced to another main character that is woven throughout the entirety of the scriptures. It's referred to as the serpent. The Hebrews call, name for the serpent is the Nakash. But before we get into that, I want to do a quick recap of what had transpired from the start of creation up to Genesis 3. All right, so God... We are told God creates a, you know, beautiful ordered world that out of darkness and disorder so that life can flourish. God then creates humans. And he said the humans will be created in our image. So right there again, we are introduced that there's, there's a group around God. And God says, the Elohim says, we're going to make humans in our image. And these humans are to be God's representatives to rule over all the earth. And, and God calls all of what he's created good. Now, also remember, it wasn't in the last podcast, but it was a few podcasts ago where we shared that the English word good is the Hebrew word tov. And the English word evil is the Hebrew word ra. And, and ra or evil, I, I kind of explained, is not just the absence of tov, it's the introduction of something additional that works against tov. So this character that we're, we're introduced to in Genesis 3 is in a state of rebellion against the Most High God, against Yahweh. And initially, all of us, all of the readers, all, uh, all of humanity... We didn't know that. We're not aware that this Nakash is in rebellion. But it, we quickly can deduce it once we continue reading in the scriptures. And, and also, we are not told at this point why or how uh, this character, the Nakash, rebels. But we find out very quickly that the serpent is on a mission to ruin God's good world. And this character, the Nakash, is the scriptures, is the Bible's first portrait of evil, first portrait of Ra. Now, this character distorts what God has purposed for good, ruining and dragging creation back to darkness and disorder. 
And it's at this point that the humans join the spiritual rebel, which leads them into chaos and into death. And it's from this point on that the human rebellion is interwoven with the spiritual rebellion. And story after story show us, you know, shows how this happens over and over and over again in the Bible. Okay, so let's now go to Genesis 3 and look at what took place at the garden, in the Garden of Eden. Now remember that Eden, this garden, is a, is a high place. These are places where the gods reside. They're very lush. They're, they're very beautiful. They've got a lot. You know, just think of a garden now. That's the same kind of thing we need to be processing. And it's the place where the earth and its creatures are interwoven. They overlap, if you will, with heaven, with the spiritual realm and its creatures. Now, now something, I, I'm, I don't know if you're all going to process this the way I did, but I've always wondered, and I've always been, I pondered a lot about regarding this dialogue that takes place between Eve and the serpent. And what I'm getting at is, for me, why isn't it that Eve is afraid or scared of this spiritual being? I mean, there really isn't anything that would indicate that this whole discourse between these two, between Eve and the serpent, was unusual. Now, let, let me explain what, I'm, what I mean and what I'm getting at. When we look at this dialogue between these two through the lens of an ancient Hebrew writer or an ancient Hebrew reader, they would not have expected Eve to be scared of this creature, this serpent. I want to dig into this some, because I think this has a big basis for understanding things throughout the rest of the Bible. See, first off, Eve, we got to reprocess this, Eve is very safe. She's securely within the confines of the Most High God's home that he calls Eden. Eden, again, is a high place. It's a garden. It's a dwelling place for the spiritual beings as well as for these new created earthly beings. I mean, I mean, Eve likely wouldn't even know there's a difference between them because why? They were made in the same image. And remember, at this point, Eve doesn't know she's naked. Remember? I mean, all of this. So, okay. Now, this is where Yahweh, the Most High God, the Creator, resides as well as those we discussed in the last podcast, the, the staff of him, his divine counsel. In other words, it would be, I, I don't think this is a stretch when you, when you step back a little bit and, and really ponder this. I, I think it'd be normal that Eve was conversing with a divine being and on, on this divine turf. I think that would have been normal. So, through the Hebrew lens, this world we experience was created by an all-powerful God, and humans are his created representatives on this new created world to follow his instructions. Eden is God's abode, and God is accompanied by these other spiritual created beings, the divine counsel, or as I refer to them as the sons of God. Now, what we read in Genesis 3 is that one of these members of this divine entourage is not pleased with what's been going on. 
with what the Most High God has done, right? With, the, with Yahweh's decision to create humans in, in their image and then give the humans delegated authority and dominion on earth. There's probably, a, it appears there's envy and jealousy going on. Also, another thing that makes this awkward or even uncomfortable, I guess, to discuss is that this dialogue is between a woman and apparently a creature from the animal kingdom. <laughs> but, but folks, what if our perspective is expanded and we don't assume this serpent is part of the animal kingdom? Just take a moment with that after what you've been hearing so far. To properly understand what's going on here in Genesis 3, we have got to process that this serpent is not a snake like we process what a snake is. Because an ancient Hebrew would interpret this serpent as a rogue Elohim, a malcontent from Yahweh's divine counsel, someone who's ticked off that was on his staff with his decision. He's the final authority, right? And he made this decision. They're going to create these humans in their image and give them authority on earth. And this person on the staff is ticked off. It's, it's rebellion. It's a rebel. An upset divine being is this serpent. And see, if we look at this divine enemy only in terms of a snake and our understanding of what a snake is, right? A member of the earthly animal kingdom, then we'll miss the bigger picture message. And then throughout the rest of our understanding, which I think so many of us have trouble understanding scripture. See, multiple scriptures and stories that are told in the Bible, they don't make sense unless... Huh, we filter them through what we're introduced here in the beginning that we've done in the previous podcast and this one here in Genesis 3. For instance, going ahead now in scripture, hundreds of years, millennia, couple of millennia, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God's heavenly throne room. It's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah describes the throne room of God where God is seated. And God is surrounded and praised by spiritual beings. And Isaiah calls these creatures seraphim, which in the Hebrew means a fiery serpent of copper color. It's like these seraphim are staff members giving praises to the Most High Elohim. Or another prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel describes this creature right, in, a, in a, another uh, very interesting way. See, Ezekiel understands this figure is a spiritual rebel who didn't want to live under God's wisdom and authority, but wanted to be God. And that is the exact same temptation that the serpent puts before Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The Nakash says they, that Adam and Eve could rule the world just like God, but they could use their own wisdom if they're only eat from the tree that God forbid them from eating. Because what tree was that? The knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't do that tree. You're to take care of everything in this garden, Adam. Just don't touch that one thing and eat from it. For within that day, if you do, you will surely die. So, all right. Now I want to go through... Uh, some of these scriptures in Ezekiel 28 that have a huge tie-in with what happened in Genesis 3. And this is a perfect example. Let me, let me pause. 
I, I, I'm not going through what Genesis 3, okay? But I want you to make sure to open up your Bibles and, and research what I'm showing you in Genesis 3 and Ezekiel 28, and we're gonna go through something also in Isaiah. All right, and this, I believe, is a perfect example of a passage of scriptures here in Ezekiel 28 that seems strange. They seem difficult to understand when looked at alone, you know, as you're going along, reading your Bible, and you're like, what is this? But when you tie these together with what we're just we're talking about, it makes the bigger picture come into focus, I think, super clear. Like if you're if you're looking through a telescope or you're looking through binoculars and you got to move them a little bit, you know, to adjust to your eye and all of a sudden it all comes into focus. I think that's what happens when we're, when we look at this, this way. So in Ezekiel 28, we read that God is scolding this human prince of this place called Tyre. This prince is scolded because he's extremely arrogant. And this prince even has considered himself a God and considers himself sitting on the seat of the God, which implies he thinks he's part of the divine council. Now, as you read this scripture in the Hebrew, the, the, the Hebrew grammar for God here is El. In this discourse, we have the Hebrew word El for God used, as well as the Hebrew word Yah, Yehovah, when it's speaking of the most high God, okay? Now, if we look at this through the lens of an ancient Hebrew person, someone who is very familiar with this term that means God, El, El does, they would think of this prince as a fool, as a human prince to think this way. You'd be, you're foolish. There's no way that this human would be part of the divine council. And in fact, very arrogant and narcissistic to even consider oneself a God like that. In fact, this human arrogance of the prince of Tyre is an affront to the most high God of Israel. So reading this in Israel, we read that God has no choice but to punish, to discipline this form of arrogance and narcissism. So let's read this passage in Ezekiel chapter 28, starting with verse one. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit on the seat of gods in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as a heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a God? but you shall be a man and not a God in the hand of him who slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Okay, Whew. so right after that, Ezekiel kind of goes into his own personal lamentation. He's lamenting about for this human prince of Tyre because he, he knows, man, he's getting it from from God. And so Ezekiel's lamenting, and here's what he laments in 
Continuing on in Ezekiel chapter 28, starting with verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Okay. I mean, wow. To me, that's just such a tie-in to what happens in the Garden of Eden for the serpent. See, after reading that, do you think Ezekiel is referring to a divine being, you know, that's rebelling against God or about a human being rebelling against God? Well, folks, it's kind of a trick question because it's both. Everything here points to the very same rebellion and is linked to the initial rebellion of a divine being from Genesis 3, the serpent. This story of the Prince of Tyre is just like the divine arrogance described in Genesis 3 of the serpent, as well as what the humans did, what Adam and Eve did. In these scriptures in Ezekiel, we should notice there is a punishment for the human realm leader as well as punishment for the spiritual realm leader. In the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, a member of God's you know, staff, the divine council, maybe one of his sons, thought of himself on par with the Most High God and was expelled from the garden to the ground or underworld, just like the Prince of Tyre is described in Ezekiel 28. What we have here in Ezekiel 28 is a human prince who is submitted to a rebellious, spiritual, unseen rogue, son of God, that is being dealt with by the Most High God as well. And just like in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, right, the spiritual character and the human character get punished by the Most High God. Okay, so that's one example. Now I want to take a look at another example of this very same concept that's in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 14, we read about the downfall of the king of Babylon. Now, as we are reading this, as we review this, ask yourself, who is this king being compared to? And I pick it up in Isaiah chapter 14, pick it up in uh, verse four, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressed has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. 
Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to shale and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to shale to the lowest depths of the pit. Wow. Once again, we have a ruler. This time it's the king of Babylon headed for the underworld, headed for shale, just like the Ezekiel 28 prince was. And starting with verse 12, there is a more direct connection to Ezekiel 28, which in turn then takes us back to the connection from Genesis chapter three. This king here in Isaiah is being compared to a divine being fallen from heaven, kicked out of the garden of God, of the mountain of God. There's an earthly realm human being punished as well as a spiritual realm ruler being punished. The scripture here in verse 12 refers to him as the son of the morning, O Lucifer. This, <laughs> this joker is so in love with himself that he declared himself above all the stars of God and all the other members of the divine council. This whole text reads like an attempted coup in the divine council, and this joker wants to be like the most high God. And it should come as no surprise that this shining one meets the same end as the prince from Ezekiel 28. I mean, this is some very interesting and very compelling things that we've got to grasp to better understand the word of God. Oh, Lord, help us to better understand your word. Now, jumping back to this, you know, Nakash, this pivotal character in Genesis 3, the serpent. Remember, the Hebrew word is Nakash. Now, I want to do a little English uh, or grammar, I guess, understanding here. The Hebrew alphabet, folks, there are no vowels. There's only consonants. And if we only look at this serpent character as a noun, a people, a place, or a thing, then the meaning is just the thing that we associated, which is, is a snake. But these consonants also form a verb, an action, right? A state or an occurrence. And when used as a verb, we get the word that this means is diviner. Divination refers to communication with the supernatural world. When applying that to the story in Genesis 3, we clearly can see that Eve is getting that type of information from the serpent. What I'm saying here is, this character talking to Eve is a divine being sharing divine information as a tool 
to stimulate some action from Eve. He's tricking her. The serpent tells Eve, oh, hey, come on, Eve, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat, you're going to be like one of us. The serpent's like, hey, sweetie, welcome to the family. I know you're the newest member here, and, and I know you just showed up, and I want you to be totally welcomed, so go eat, dear. Enjoy yourself. Go ahead and eat from that tree that he's, no, he didn't, he doesn't, it's okay. You'll be okay. Now, I don't know about you, but when I process this exchange of dialogue between the serpent and Eve, understanding what I understand now, I have way more sympathy for Eve than I used to. See, we tend to think she's naive, she's stupid, or she's disobedient. But re-looking at this with this, this kind of lens, can you see how she is safely? She's safely within the confines of this divine council family. I mean, it's like this guy comes right into her house and she's all comfortable, right? That's what's going on. I mean, she, yeah, she's the newest member of God's family. She has a status, though, as a member of God's family. So what was said to her is a certain, certain type of validity. In other words, what I'm getting at is, well, wouldn't we all kind of discern that of, that of course God, Dad, Father, wants us to be like the other, wants to be like all of them. We're all one family, right? We all represent the creator, which would lead us down the path of why would we die? But it was all a trick, a deception. Eve and Adam, right? Adam and Eve were already made in the image of God. They didn't need to eat the fruit to be like God. They already were, and it ticked off the serpent. What we had to do, and it's still what we have to do, is trust the highest God. Trust Elohim. Eve was tricked by the serpent to question who she really was. And you know what, everybody? The same dang thing goes on every day with every one of us and almost every decision we have in every part of our life. Who am I? Am I a child of God? What a piece of work this serpent was. Man, he really screwed us up. And it's here, we, we just kind of got to take a moment and treat this very carefully, I believe, as we look at God's judgment. See, the curse that was leveled at Adam did not supersede God's mandate to subdue the earth and take dominion. Adam was still supposed to take care of everything. It just made it a lot harder. Kicking into Adam and Eve out of the garden turned a glorious future into, you know, mundane daily drudgery. But we also know that God would take steps to restore his rule and that descendants of his creation would be critical in the future kingdom. The grace of God was being revealed right away there in Genesis chapter 3. And God's judgment on Eve is somehow intertwined with the judgment on the serpent, the curse on, uh, that he put on both the Adam, Eve, and the, and the serpent, but specifically the curse he put on Eve and the curse he put on the serpent. Scripture says Eve would suffer intensified pain in childbirth. He's going to multiply her pain in Genesis 3.16. 
But that, would, that implies that regardless of the fall of man, Eve still was going to feel pain in childbirth. Females were still going to have some pain. It's just going to be intensified from now on. It's, in, it's critical that, that females bear children because of the relationship of the destiny of the Nakash and what he did. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the Nakash and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. Her seed, the, 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 the woman's seed is going to bruise your, your head, Nakash, but you're going to bruise her seed's heel. Well, right then and there is a very cryptic version of the Messiah. It's deliberately veiled, but it's there. It's the veiled by the Most High God. Say, he's going to get it in his heel, right? Which reveals, huh, right there, God's not done with humanity. God plans to use humanity to rule earth, and it's not going to be abandoned. A descendant of Eve is going to come forth who would someday undo the damage caused by this rebel Elohim, this Nakash. Whew. Now, let me finish up today with a few examples of what the Messiah, Jesus, says about what we looked at today. In other words, does Jesus use some references to what we read in Genesis 3? Well, absolutely. For instance, remember when Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8? He says, you are of, in verse 44, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. That's, you know, also when Jesus calls the Pharisees serpents and the offspring of vipers. Yeah, I mean, whoa. This is the primary enemy Jesus is here to defeat. The spiritual realm, the kosh, as well as the humans that are going to bow to his leadership. Do you get what I'm saying? Okay. So he's going after the spiritual leader that the Pharisees are believing in. Jesus comes to free humanity from the captivity of this divine council member who's gone rogue. And Jesus knows that the only way out of this dilemma was by him giving up everything for us. Hallelujah. Wow. Oh, I hope this spoke to you. I hope it inspires you to dig into this some more. Um, you know, I, if you've heard this before, I hope it was great to hear it again. If you've never heard this, I hope you're going, what? And I hope you pause and go dig into this scripture, get a concordance out, grab a hold of what the Hebrew word meanings are, and go dig into those scriptures. Let me, uh, let me close this out in prayer. Father, I thank you for this today, Lord. I, I ask you boldly, Father God, to help us all to better understand your word to humble us where we, where we need to be humbled and so that we can uh, be, have renewed minds to grasp what it is that you want us to glean from your word and the depth of it. Uh, 
get us, Father God, to not just settle that we want more. We want more, we're more hungry for more of your word, that we eat more of your word. We decipher more of your word. We, we just pause around your word. We drink it up. Father, we thank you for this. We ask for your continued grace and mercy on us. We come to you boldly to repent of anything we've done that's unholy and unrighteous. We are these new creatures that are to follow your guidance and your leading. And we thank you, Lord, for the day that you've given us. And it's in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus that we come to you. Amen. All right. Bye, y'all. God bless you. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel. Thank you.